it's becoming more and more obvious. And if we listen too much and we to the wrong things and don't look enough and listen enough to the right things, we'll be like everybody else and be afraid and be panicked. We have to understand that God knows everything ahead of time. And he loves us. And if he loves us and we belong to him, then he's made some provision for us to protect us. Not from everything. He doesn't protect us from the pressures and the evil, but he provides a place of escape. Psalm 91 is so powerful because it talks about God's protection and God's deliverance. And we love that psalm. It's just so comforting. But we forget the, the beginning and the entrance of the, all of that that comes is he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my God, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then it goes on and talks about all that he's going to do to protect us. But he can only protect us when we're in the secret place. When we're right up in that secret place. So the question is, what is that secret place? There have been different times in my life I've had different ideas of what it is. But as I'm walking with him further and getting to know him better, I'm finding out that that secret place is different than where I thought it was. And it's not a place that at first looks as if it's going to be a place of safety. It's not a place that at first looks as if it's going to be secure, and sometimes it feels just the opposite. It feels shaky and insecure, and this is where we have to trust him and trust his word. And you'll understand why I'm saying this and what I'm saying in a moment. Because I'm listening to the flow of the Spirit, and I'm knowing where the message is headed, and it looks like there are two different directions, but they're not, because there's one God. There's one God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to begin a new series. But these series are building on one another. They're not just haphazard. Because there's somewhere, somewhere God is taking us that really in the fall I'll begin to share with you more of, of, of what, who we are, Faith Christian Center, what Faith Christian Center is intended by God to be, and what, why we're here. I was meditating on this yesterday and sitting out on, this, on our back porch and just meditating on this whole message and, you know, realizing the question of the, that the great gurus ask and the question that the, whatever they are, the spiritual leaders of, in other parts of the world ask, you know, what is the meaning of life? And then they debate with one another that meaning. How can we determine our own meaning when we didn't create ourselves? How can we do that? There's only one place to look, and that's to the Creator, <clears throat> the one who created us, and He's the one that gives us meaning. <clears throat> Romans 12 is about, is obviously the second to the last chapter in the, did I tell you Romans? Yes. Hebrews, okay, yeah. Hebrews, that's what I'm supposed to be talking about this morning. Hebrews is a letter that is written, we don't know who the author is, other than the Holy Spirit. It's a letter written to Jewish believers that had been driven out of Jerusalem by the persecution and they were spread mostly into Asia Minor, which is where Paul had started his churches. 
and, uh, where, which is ter- modern-day Turkey. And they were, because they were separated from the mother church and they didn't have Facebook and Internet and streaming and all, you know, FaceTime and all that stuff, they were disconnected and the only communication they had with the mother church were men that would travel back and forth and bring letters back and forth. And Hebrews is one of those letters and when it had come to the attention of whoever it is, whether it's Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, it had come to their attention that there were, there were false prophets coming in, teachers coming into their churches, teaching them that in order to be a Christian, a Jewish Christian, you had to keep the law, you had to observe all the practices of the Old Testament as well as believe in Christ. And, and so that if you read through that letter, you'll find that it's a series of comparisons. It starts with the angels being compared to Christ. And then it talks about Melchizedek being compared to Christ. And then it talks about uh, uh, the church fathers being compared. Because all the things that they were being told to trust in, the writer of Hebrews was comparing them to Christ and saying, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. Angels were to serve him. And I don't want to get into all of that, but basically, and then his answer of how to live this out comes into chapter 11, which is the great chapter on faith. And right before that, he says, don't, don't fall away. Don't become discouraged. Don't, don't fall away. But, 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 but uh, you, need to, you need to persevere. You need to have patience so that you may finish your course. And don't draw back because the end of chapter 10 tells us if you eat, draw back. His soul takes no pleasure in us. But we are to go on because the just, that's us, right? Those who have been made justified in God's sake, we live by faith. That means we don't pull faith off the shelf when we get in trouble. It's not a tool to, to fix your flat tire like a jack is to get your tire out, you pump your tire up or you know, lift the car up so you can change the tire. It's not some tool that you go to and pull out and kind of clean it off and you pump it up. You know, we were looking, going through our, doing something in the garage yesterday and my wife noticed her bicycle, which she hasn't used this year. So I went over to, she said, well, I'd like to ride it. I went over and felt the tires. Well, they've lost some air over the last year. So it needs, to, it needs to be pumped up. So I need to go get the pump and pump it up. Faith is not something we go and grab to pump ourselves up when we're getting weak or we get in strength. Faith is something we're to live by. It's a way of life. The just shall live by faith. And then chapter 11 goes on because what they were not living by faith. They were mixing faith with works. So he goes through all that and it's basically correction. He's correcting them. And chapter 12 now deals with how to receive correction. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Start in verse 5. And there's a reason for this. And you'll see it in a minute. Have you forgotten the exhortations which speaks to you as sons? That's very important in what we're going to see. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be dismayed when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Let's stop there a second. Take a deep breath. Everything's okay. The essence of what he's saying there, first of all, 
because we can miss this. The foundation of all he's saying here and going to say and the foundation of what God wants to say to us is that first of all, this is coming out of a heart of love, of God's love for us. What he's saying here is because, talking to them, and of course we hear this, because God loves us, he'll correct us. We live in a society now that teaches our parents that if you really love your children, you don't want to ever discourage them you don't want to ever tell them that they're wrong. You want, to, you want to help them come into their fullness by encouraging them and building them up. And instead of saying, look, you blew it here, do a spin on it and give them the positive side. Well, that's good. You're trying. And never, 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 never come down on them, certainly not with corporal punishment. Never express anger to them. Never, you know, you need to build them up and encourage them well, we're living with a generation of people that were raised that way, and how well are they doing? How well are our leaders doing? How well are our politicians doing? I'm young enough. Oh, young enough. That sounds good. I'm old enough to remember when we had statesmen. Not all of them, but we had some statesmen, not politicians. A politician its motive is to get reelected first. And whatever they do is governed by that motive of getting reelected or their friends elected. A statesman's purpose is do, to do what's best for the state and for the people, even if it's there at their own cost of their own reelection. And there was, in, in, in before my generation, there were generations of statesmen, and I may not have always agreed with their position, but I respected their motive, and I could trust them because their motive what was best for this nation. And I say that because what we have now is the fruit of a generation raised with the philosophy I'm talking about. Don't ever correct them because that's discouraging. That beats their little spirits down. But the Bible says to beat their little behind. <laughs> not to hurt them, not to injure them, but to correct. See, God designed, I didn't mean to get on this this morning. God designed our body by providing a, a certain place that was well padded and yet filled with nerve endings so that it could endure the correction and not be harmed, but feel the pain of it. And the Word of God says, if you do that out of love, you will live, literally save them from hell. I'm not talking about child abuse. That's not the motive of love. I was always very careful, not always, as I, I grew to understand this principle. I was careful with our children that when it came time to administer the love of a father, <laughs> that I would make sure before I went into that room that that's what my motive was and I wasn't angry because of something that they did, that, how it affected me. So often parents discipline their children out of anger and their anger is based on what it means about them. 
Either they're angry because they know they've been putting something off for too long and now it just explodes or, or the way that child behaves embarrasses them, but it's selfish. It's based on them. And you know, whatever you do with a child, you're going to communicate to them the motive of why you're doing it, whether you understand it or not. So I was always sure, I'm doing this because I love them. And by the time I calmed down, I didn't want to do it anymore. But now I had to do it because I love them. So what the writer is saying is because a father loves his child, he will correct them. He will discipline them. Why? Because he knows, the father knows what it's going to be like out in that world. And a father's responsibility is to prepare that child to function out in that world. Because if you don't train them at home to do what's right, there are laws out there that will train them. And unfortunately, they'll have to spend that training process behind bars because the world out there has consequences for their actions. And my responsibility as a father, because I love that child, I'll pay the immediate price of having to do something that's not comfortable because I love that child enough to do for that child what's going to help that child when they get out there. And I've had them thank me. So what God does for us, because He is love, He can do nothing outside of love. So everything God does is motivated by love. The problem is we have an idea of love that's sometimes different from God's meaning of love. And He's right. And so what the writers here is talking about, about how they're to receive this correction he's just brought to them. And he's saying, first of all, understand, this has come from God, not from me. And understand it's God's correcting you because you're his son, you're his child. We're going to see, he goes on to say, if you're not his child, he won't correct you. So the fact that he's correcting us is proof we're his children. And it's proof that he loves us. See, we want God to do for us what we want. But we're still children. We're the children of God. And because we're children, we don't always know what's best for us. You take a child to a, to a, um, to a buffet dinner or luncheon where they have the desserts at the end. You know where the child's going to go. And the child in you wants to go there too. We want to go to make sure we get the desserts done first because that's what tastes the best. But as a parent, I've got to say, look, you know, you've got to start at the other end. Start where the things are that are good for you. And then at the end, afterwards, as the reward, you can have the dessert. So I've got to, for, it makes this child eat what's good for them, not what they would choose for themselves. But as children of God, often we want the desserts. And I don't want the Brussels sprouts. And I don't want the beets. And I don't want the, the liver. Or I don't want the food that's, that, that doesn't taste good, but is good for me. And, and so growing and maturing as a child means that I'm gonna, there are going to be things in me that need to be corrected and changed. And because God is a Father that loves me, He will not leave me to my own devices. That's comforting. Some of you don't feel comforted yet. 
It's comforting that he doesn't leave you to yourself. But he will correct you at whatever level he needs to. And he talks here about two ways of responding to correction that's wrong, that won't work. And here's the thing with God. He won't quit. We sang about his love will never give up, but that means his love will never give up correcting us until we get the lesson. See, in our culture today, if you've gone through third grade a couple of times, they'll promote you anyway just because they don't want you to feel discouraged. With God, you don't get to fourth grade until you pass third grade. God doesn't change his standards so we feel good. God will never change his standards because his standards are there to bring us to fourth grade and then fifth grade and then sixth grade. God used tests to see where you are. We're going to talk about that. We may not get to that today, but we're going to talk about it. All right. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? So this is addressed to children of God. That's us. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Despise means to reject it. And there may be some of you in here this morning that will reject what God's going to say to us today. I don't want to hear it. There are different ways of rejecting it. I mean, the, the most obvious way is to storm out, but then everybody sees you've done that. So what we do is we sit here and just shut our ears and maybe get online and play some game or look at the news or text somebody. Or we just shut out. We just, I can't hear that. We just, I despise it. I, I just, you know, that's not the truth. He's not speaking the truth. This is condemnation. This is the law. All these are ways of rejecting God's correction. The second way is to be dismayed. That's the faint. That's to say, I can't do this. Some of you heard me tell this story before, but we had a, uh, uh, years ago, we had a, we bought, actually our oldest son wanted one, so we got a dog. And, and he wanted a German Shepherd. I mean, he wanted a, a man's dog, because you know, we'd had this little poodle before. And so we go to this farm, and there was a lady that we knew, and she, a friend knew her, and, you know, he had this litter of, of shepherds. And so he picked it out. Well, it wasn't completely a shepherd. It was partly a collie. So it never grew to full strength. And, and he, he named his this masculine German king. <laughs> king was anything but a king. <laughs> it was the most rebellious dog I have ever known. And so where I had learned with the little poodle that we had, I'd taken this poodle to obedience school and discovered right away they don't teach the dog obedience, they teach you. Because you can't teach the dog obedience if you haven't learned it yourself because you won't follow out the instructor's instructions. He'll tell you what to do and you'll try it the first day and the second day you'll put it off. So you weren't obedient to his instructions so you couldn't teach obedience to the dog. We'll, we'll see this later on where Jesus talks about the same thing. But not dogs. And so I brought my son and the dog to an obedience trainer. And I can still see this. The obedience trainer, which is what he told me, uh, they had taught me to do with the poodle, said you need the first commandment is to get the dog to sit. And so King's there on this leash, and you know, and he's just kind of doing what King liked to do, which is whatever he wanted to do. I mean, he just, he, he was boundless joy. 
And he'd get loose. He'd be bounding through the neighborhood, his tongue flapping in the breeze. Just, you know, yeah, life was great to him. But you couldn't control him. So he couldn't be let loose. He had to always be on a chain or in the house. And see, if we don't know how to control our freedom, if we don't know how to be disciplined and under the authority of God's word, then there are things God can't bring into your life because they may hurt you. There may be things he can't entrust to you because they would ultimately hurt you. And he can't, won't keep you chained and he won't keep you in a basement, but that limits what God can do with you and through you if we don't ever learn to, be, learn to sit when he says sit, heal when he says heal. So the first commandment was to teach this dog to respond to my son's words. That's what it was. So that he didn't need to use a chain, but it starts with a choke collar. Don't panic. Don't send me letters. The choke collar didn't hurt this dog. Nothing hurt this dog. The choke collar didn't hurt this dog, but it, it, it signaled to him he needed to listen. And so the, 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 the owner, he, he told my son what to do, and the dog just didn't react. So the, so the, the instructor came and he says, I'll do this. He says, King, sit! And King just, you know, and he pulled up on the chain and forced his backside down. And King looked at him like this. And then, this is what we he just collapsed. He just fell like a big puddle of loose, loose flesh. I mean, this strong dog suddenly became jello. He just, he just, le- he just he leaned right into him like this. No, it was my son doing this. He leaned just right into him, and it's like, and the instructor says, that's his way of avoiding what you want to train him. He's trying to tell you, I can't do this. Oh, Chris, this is too hard for me. I'm just not, I'm just not made to do this. And some of us do that very well with God. Oh, I'm just not strong enough. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not this. I'm not that. God knows you. God knows where you're strong and where you're weak. He knows all about you. He knows things about you you don't know. So whatever God tells you to do, he's, he's already determined that you can do it with His grace and help. The issue is not whether you can. The issue is are you willing? And one of the ways we avoid Him is we turn willingness into I, 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 I'm not willing, we express by I can't. And this is what we're going to begin to talk to, talk about. We redefine who God is for ourselves. We, we redefine what God's Word says because God uses His Word to reveal who He is to us. And we filter it through who we want Him to be and through who others have told us He is. And the result is we're not dealing with the real God. Oh, He's there and He's real. But when I start redefining Him, I become God. And now I start using God to help me. And we're going to see what that does when we do that. I'm not in the secret place of the Most High. I'm trying to bring God under my secret place. And this may hurt a little bit, but the parts of us that are going to hurt are the parts of us God's trying to show He wants to help us with because He loves us. So the two ways of avoiding God's correction 
which this verse says is avoiding God's love. I'm sitting there during praise and worship, and then as the Spirit of God began to move, and then through this wonderful special we heard, saying, God, we're talking about just resting in your love and how much you love, and I know where this message is. He says, they're the same thing. You cannot rest in my love if you don't know me. You won't trust me if you're still trying to control who I am because you're still in control. And we're very subtle at that. We can lean towards God, but not on him. And so if you listen to this and you just put up walls and say, oh, yeah, I know, I don't want to hear this, I can't hear this, then you're, dis- you're, you're, you're being, you're dismaying, you're just, dis- you know, I can't do this. And then, or if you're fainting and just saying, oh, this is too much for me, allow, because I've done that. There's some things God has challenged me with. I mean, really challenged me with lately that I would look, read it in a book and I, I close the book. I don't want to hear this. I mean, I've done it. Put it away. I, I don't want to deal with that. that. That's just getting in an area I don't want to get into. And I'm not talking about sin. And, you know, I just added things that he wanted. So I literally closed the book and put it away. I was, afraid to look, I was afraid to pick the book up. But here's the difference. Here's where I've learned to grow. I recognize that and acknowledge it to God. Say, God, I, that scares me. I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to look at that. But help me, Holy Spirit. You're in me to help me to do the things I, I I can't do on my own. To strengthen me, help me. And what I found is, in a day or two, there was bubbling up in me. You know what? Read it again. And this time, when I read it, there was a desire in me to do what it was saying. There was a desire in me to face that. And I realized that was because the Holy Spirit came alongside of me and began to help working from within. Philippians chapter 2 says, For God is at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. So he wants, he, the Spirit of God is in you to work in you a desire to do His will, but we've got to call upon Him and trust Him to do that. So here's a situation where I saw what God's word requires. I don't want to do that. I don't even want to look at it, let alone. Because if I look at it, now I'm going to feel convicted. So I don't want to look at it. See, that's a way to faint. And that's what I was doing. But I brought the fainting to him. and said, train me. Teach me. All right. Verse 7. Now, different translations will express this a little differently because in the Greek, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it goes both ways. But I'll explain to you what it's saying in either case. If you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not chasten? The word chasten is a word that means teach or train. You understand there's a difference between teaching and training. Teaching is what we're doing now. I'm explaining things to you. And teaching appeals to your mind. It gives you understanding of things. Training helps you to learn to do what you don't want to do. So in the military, in basic training, not basic teaching, basic training, they get you up when you don't want to get up. They make you do things not only that you don't want to do, you're convinced you can't do them. And they make you do things you know you can't do and you discover you can do things you didn't think you could do and in the process you learn to do what they tell you to do. And that's critical because you get out on a battlefield 
and your sergeant says, keep your head down, and you get curious and want to look around, you may lose it. You're in a group that's in a battle, and everybody needs to be functioning under one leader, and you want to do what you want to do at the time. They've got to get that out of you before you ever get in the battlefield, because it not only your life is at stake, but their life may be at stake also. And so training, in the, in the basic training, is not teaching, although there is teaching involved, but the training part is, a, is really boils down to what the obedience school was down, is learning to do what you're told to do, whether you want to, whether you like it, or whether you even think you can. It's called submission to authority. So training is making yourself, someone making you do what you don't want to do or don't think you can do so that you learn you can do it and then you learn to do it. And that's what the word chastise means in Greek. And so this verse is saying, if you will allow God to work this in you, then he is able to work in you as a father would with a son. The implication is if you don't, then you're not allowing him to operate in your life as a father. It doesn't mean he's rejected you. It doesn't mean he's not your father. You're just not allowing him to perform that role in you. Everybody clear on that? That's what this verse is talking about. So if you allow God to correct you, if you, if you receive his correction, his training, if you allow him to bring you through this process, then you are allowing him to operate in your life as a father does to a son. That's what this says. All right. But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, if God doesn't correct you, it's because you're not his son. So if he's correcting you, if he's bringing chastisement, training into your life, if he's working and you're his son, daughter, A number of years ago, one of our, I disciplined one of our children. And they were a little older. And when I went into the room to discipline, they turned to me and said, Dad, I was beginning to concern that you really didn't still love me. And that child saw my correction as tangible evidence of my love as a father for my son. And God loves you so much that he won't leave you where you are. Not only that, he'll pro- to prepare you for what is to come. And that's really what we're talking about. And we'll see that in a minute. So if you endure chastening, if you go through the process, then God is able to deal with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which we've all become partakers, verse 8, then you're illegitimate sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and paid them, and we paid them respect shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of our spirits and live? For they indeed, talking about our natural parents, they indeed did this for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them, but He, our Father in heaven, for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Little side note. If it's joyful and it's not chastening. If it's easy, it's not God's chastening. So we've got to get over the fact that I don't want to do things that aren't easy. I don't want to do things that aren't comfortable. 
then what you want to do is sit down in the playpen at 25, 30 years of age and play with rattles and pacifiers and have your diapers changed. You don't want to grow up. But the problem is, God will keep after you. We sang about His love will never give up. That's not just that He doesn't give up on you when you fail. He doesn't give up when you don't want to do it. He'll keep after you and 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 make it more. Because I didn't go through it, but if you went through those words in chapter, verse 5 and 6 and 7, those words are an increasing pressure. They're different style, types, different degrees of discipline to the point of scourging. And I've looked that word up. I've tried to get that word to mean something else. It means a spanking. <laughs> it's the word mastigo, which means to be beaten with a rod. It's the same word that was used when they beat Jesus with rods. It's our flesh. God will deal with you after the flesh. 1 Corinthians 11, which we read so often for communion, talks about judging ourselves, and we'll get to that maybe next Sunday. Judging ourselves, and, 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 and because he said, so that we would not be judged with the world, because God will judge you, as a, he will judge a Christian, so that we're not condemned with the world. So there's judgment and there's condemnation, they're two different things. Judgment is when a line is drawn and says, this is where you are, this is what you're doing, but it's with the idea of correction, it's with the idea of bringing you up, the idea of bringing you wholeness. Judgment, con condemnation, is ultimate separation and punishment. Two different words, two different goals. That's why Romans 8 says, there is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's judgment, 1 Corinthians 3 that we may not be condemned with the world, we're to judge ourselves. And Paul at one point says of a person to the church at Corinth, he says, you haven't dealt with this person, you haven't corrected them, you haven't brought the correction to their lives because they're living with their father's wife, their stepmother. And you haven't dealt with it, so I've got to deal with it. So here's what I've done. I've turned that person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their soul may be saved. Paul teaches, and we'll talk about this down the road, Paul teaches something that, that, that some churches have turned into excommunication, but the purpose of it was that if you had somebody that would not submit, somebody that would not obey God's laws, somebody within the body that would not do what the God told, them, told everybody they were supposed to do, there came a point after a process of correction where you removed them from the church. And the reason to do it, he says, the motive is to do it is so that they would get in their senses a feeling of what it would be like to be removed from the body of Christ. And the good thing to report is in the case of this person, they receive the correction. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about receiving them to fall into Satan's hands and be so utterly discouraged that they would quit. God brings correction to his church because he loves us. Different degrees of correction. All right. We're not at the subject of the message yet. No chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, therefore, strengthen your hands which hang down and your feeble knees. Don't faint at what you're hearing. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed. And he goes on and talks about some specific things. Now verse 18. 
this comparison. For you've not come to the mountain that may be touched, that may be burned with fire, to the blackness and darkness and tempest, to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded and, and even so much as to touch beast that touches the mountain. It shall be stoned and shot through with an arrow. I'll explain this in a moment. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Remember we've looked back before when we talked about worship in the very beginning. We went into Exodus 19 where God on the mountain tells Moses, I want you to go down and I want you to consecrate the people for three days. And at the end of those three days, I want you to bring them out to the base of this mountain. Put a barrier around so they don't try to get up on the mountain because if they get up on the mountain, they're going to die. And God goes on to explain because when they come out here, I'm going to come down on the top of this mountain in all my glory and all my power. And I'm going to reveal myself to them in a way that they will fear me, not be afraid of me, but they will reverence me by seeing who I really am. And then the result of that is they will not sin. Remember we talked about this? And they came out to the base of the mountain three days later, and they saw the thundering and the lightning, and they went, oh, whoa, oh, 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 this is more than we can handle. Now, God knows what He's doing. Amen? I mean, I hope we start with that. God knows what He's doing, and He's training His people. He's training them for what lies ahead so that they won't sin. And Father knows best. So the method that He knew would work is for them to come and to get a revelation of who He is in His authority and in His power a revelation of this God that they who delivered them out of Egypt. A revelation of this God who would open the Red Sea and deliver them from Pharaoh's chariots. A God who is providing water for them and food for them. A God who is providing for them. He now wanted them to see who this God was because they'd come from a land where they worshipped idols of those gods. There was a God of the moon. There was a God of the sun. There was a God of the wheat. There was a God of the barley. There was a God of the water. There was a God that represented everything that was provided for them and they were trained to worship those gods. And he wants to show them, no, those are metal. Those are wood. Those are things man's made. I'm the real God and I have existed and I'm the one that delivered you. That's why, that's why chapter 20 begins by saying, give them these words. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And he wants to reveal who he is. Not all of who he is, but reveal the side of who he is. He knows that they need to see now. So that they won't sin when the temptation comes. And their reaction was to faint and say, huh, oh no, this is too much for us. And they ran back in their tents and they told Moses, you go talk to God. Listen carefully. This was how they saw that they could fulfill their purpose. You go talk to God and whatever he says, you come tell us and we will do it. And I believe with all my heart that they were sincere. 
I believe with all my heart, they said, look, this is too much for us, but if we just water this down a little bit, then tell us, we want to do what God wants us to do. We want to obey His commandments. We want to be pleasing in His sight, and we'll do it. But the result was they did sin. They decided, listen carefully, they decided for themselves, one, what they could handle, and they decided for themselves what they thought was best to bring them to a place of obedience, not disobedience. And they ended up, while Moses was on the mountain with God, talking to him and getting those commandments and writing from God, they were down in the valley violating the second commandment. Well, first and second. You shall have no other gods and you shall make no graven images. They were violating those. The same people that said, look, just tell us what to do. We want to obey God. Our hearts, our intention is to obey God. But God knows how to train us in a way that we will obey Him and we will finish our course with joy. God knows how to do that in our lives. But we have to be willing to submit to His way and not try to get Him to adopt to our way. And this is where we're headed. And here's why this is so crucial. Here's why this is so crucial for us. He says, you've not come to that mountain. Verse 21, 22. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of justified men who are now made complete or perfect because they're now in heaven, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the bloods of the sprinkling that speaks of better things than Abel. He said, look, you didn't come. You, you believers, you Jewish believers, us too, you have not come and God hasn't called us to Mount Sinai. He hasn't called us to come down and to see His thundering and His lightning. He's called us to Mount Zion, which is where God brought His presence down in the temple, which is, God where, which is why we've been learning to worship and to worship His, bring His presence in. God says, you've come to a different mountain. You've come to a mountain where the saints that have already gone before you are there worshiping God. You've come to a mountain where men who've been, who have been justified have now been matured and made complete because they've come into, pray, into heaven. To all the angels, to all the, You've come to this, and to the God of the, who's a judge. So we can come with a confidence and boldness much more than they could. And back in he, chapter 10, he says, the writer of Hebrews says, for we have a new and living way by which we come with boldness and confidence to come into a throne room now of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need. So we're to come boldly to this Father, but He's still a God of justice and He's still a God of truth. So we're not to fear. We're to come to this God, but He's still a God of holiness. And this is what we're going to see. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth at that mountain? 
But he has now promised, saying, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. That's the spiritual atmosphere around this earth. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, and the things which cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming, not was, is a consuming fire. What's this all about? Where, where are we headed? God is a loving Father to us. Wants to bring us to the place because He knows what's coming. What's coming is that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. In fact, you see it right now. Things that were solid, things that were in place, nations that have existed, Confucius saying, God's promise that just as the earth shook when He spoke from the top of that mountain, there's coming a day when the earth and the spiritual atmosphere around this earth is going to get shaken. And the purpose for the shaking is to separate that which can be shaken from that which can't be shaken. Ever, ever, they don't do it so much anymore, but in spring cleaning, they used to beat rugs. Take a rug or something and you hang it over a clothesline and you go, whap, like that. And what happens? The dust that was in there gets separated from the real fibers that are part of that carpet. They were in there, they were mixed in and you couldn't see them and maybe even your vacuum cleaner didn't get them out. They were in there, but it took a jolt. And that jolt separated from the real carpet, the permanent carpet. It separated the dirt and the dust that were, had been through the course of life, through the course of walking on it, through the course of just being in a house where there is dust and it settles down. Through life, things had gotten embedded in there and the only way to know what was dust from what was the real was for it to be shaken and find out what can be shaken and what can't be shaken. And we are at a time where we're going to discover what there is in our life that can be shaken and what can't be shaken. And it's good. It's part of God's process because the things that can be shaken that stay in our lives will destroy us because we're coming to a time where things in our life that are weak, that are, that are, in, that are, that are founded on the wrong things will fall down. And we're not going to get into it today, but we will next time. What we're talking about, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13, and we'll end with this verse. I just felt led to spend this time about God's correction so that we would understand where God's coming from in this. And I have prayed this through to make sure this is the heart of God for us now, and I know it is. I know it is. Hebrews chapter 13, 2, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13. Paul has been correcting the church at Corinth. This whole letter is a correction because this church that he founded came to the place that when he corrected them the first time with issues such as I mentioned before about this man who was sleep, living with his father, with his step, this guy's stepmother, 
the guy was, was living with his, with his stepmother, excuse me. He corrected that. He corrected other things in their lives. He got into their lives and told them what the God's standard was and what they needed to do where they weren't living up to that standard. And the result of it is they turned on Paul. And they wrote a response back to him basically saying, you aren't hearing from God. They wrote a response back to him and saying, you're being too hard on us. They wrote a response back to him to the point that when he was trying to when it come back there, they refused to let him in. The founder of the church, the apostle Paul, because they thought they were more spiritual with him than he was. That's what the first part of 1 Corinthians is all about because the gifts of the spirit were flowing and because there were outward manifestations of how God was using them, they thought they were more spiritual than Paul because they didn't see all of that in him. He dealt with issues of character. He dealt with issues of holiness. He dealt with issues of the fruit of the Spirit, and they were flowing in the gifts of the Spirit, and they are for us, but they're not a measure of how spiritual we are. And so they thought they were so much more spiritual that they understood better to the point that they were telling Paul, basically, you're not hearing from God, and we are. So Paul writes this letter correcting them, and with that background, you'll understand what he's talking about here. He's talking about whether they're in Christ or not. But there's one verse I want to look at. He says, by, by the third time I'm coming to you, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. I've told you before and foretell even as I'm present the second time now. And being absent, I write these things t- to those who have sinned before, to all the rest, that I come again, I will not spare, that I won't spare you. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but is mighty, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, for we are also weak, because they accuse Paul of being weak. For we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Here's what I want you to do. Examine you as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So Paul is saying to them, you need to test yourself. You need to look at yourself and examine yourself and see whether you really are in the faith. And we're not talking about questioning your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. What we're going to talk about is what is the foundation of your life? What is the foundation? What is your life, your whole life? What's it built on? What are you standing on every day to hold you up, to sustain you? What governs your life? Because you'll find out when things start shaking what it is. And if you start shaking and falling, then you're standing on something or things that are, can be shaken. And those are things, because the end of Hebrews 13, 12 said, for the kingdom of God that's been given to us cannot be shaken. Anything that can be shaken in your life is not of the kingdom of God. So if you're standing on things and the world starts shaking and you start crumbling, it doesn't mean you know you not sway. But you start crumbling, then you are standing on something that's not the kingdom of God. And we better find that out now. While there's time to move over and stand on something that's in the kingdom of God. 
So the title of this series is Sure Foundation. You'll find a little different title if you get the, the D, CD because I changed it this morning. It's the right foundation or something like that. The, we're looking at what is, the, what, is, what is the foundation? What have you, what's the foundation of your life? And Paul says here, we need to examine it. We need to openly, honestly be willing to look now. I've begun to pray. God, I know from your word, there's going to come a time I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to give an account of my life. Not whether I'm going to heaven or not, I'm going to give an account of my life. I'm going to give an account of my life as a husband for my wife of 47 years or however many years it will be then. I'm going to give an account for my children. I'm going to give an account for you. That weighs on me. So I stand there and say, God, I need to know now the truth of where I am. I need to know now what you're going to tell me then while there's time for me to make adjustments. I need to face it now and not, because I know myself how easy it is to close the book and put it away and say, I don't want to look at that. And I know how easy it is to take what I'm seeing and begin to water it down and say, well, I tried hard and to change it. I know how easy that is for me to do it. I can't afford that. I need you to show me the truth. Test me. Paul says, examine yourself. Be willing to let the Spirit of God show you simply what are you trusting in in your life. And we'll look next time at what that foundation is and what a foundation is. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and we may be coming with trembling inside, but we're coming. We're not going to be like the children of Israel who ran away and went and hid in their tents and told the pastor to go find out and come tell them. We're going to come and receive from you the correction, the training, the whatever it is that we need so that you may be allowed to work in us what you desire. Father, as we prepare to leave today and go into this week, may your precious Holy Spirit begin to open our eyes in the situations of our life and see, show us what it is we're trusting in, what it is we're standing on. But more than that, work in our hearts a willingness to look honestly at what you're telling us so that we're not among those that just are dismayed and push it away and say, I can't do that. Strengthen us. Strengthen our knees that we can stand strong and our feet that we can walk straight with you. Strengthen our heads that we can lift up and look in your eyes and see the love in your eyes as you direct us and correct us. Strengthen our hands that we may be able to embrace you and embrace everyone and help one another through this. Thank you for loving us this much. We thank you, Father, for your precious word and your precious Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.